Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hi, so my name is Grace. Um, If you don't know me, it's usually because I don't have my camera on. Um, I'm from Wexford and yeah, I've been coming for seven months now. So yeah, I'm just going to do the reading. The reading is Acts chapter 7 from 1 to 5 and um, verse 44 to 30. Then the high priest said to Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to his land where you are now living. He gave them no inheritance here, but even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at the time Abraham had no child. So this is to 44 to 60. Um, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or will or where will my resting place be? Has not my people, has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just as your ancestors said, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the comings of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up and saw heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Jesus prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell onto his knees and cried out, Lord, 
Do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he had fell asleep. So I'm just going to pray for Monty before he comes and gives the talk. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a God of blessings. Thank you that you have blessed us with another day to live for you, Lord. I thank you for your word and the privilege that we have to read it freely. I now pray for Monty as he comes to give us this talk today. May his words not be his own, but may them be the words of yours. Open our eyes so we can see what you have to teach us, our ears to listen, and our hearts to accept and to let the truth sink in. So yeah, Lord, I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Grace. Thank you, Muffy. Uh, it's great. It's always a privilege to be with you. I've enjoyed, uh, obviously, the times I've been able to be physically with you and, and share in worship and with some of your leaders over the years. Um, it's always a bit of a highlight to, to spend time with you guys. And again, I'm sorry, I thought that the last time when I was doing this on Zoom, it was a one-off and that the next time we'd be together. Um, it's a little bittersweet. I was able to worship in my own church this morning because in the North, we've got back together for physical meetings again. And all I can say is, yeah, I look forward to it. It's going to be special when it happens. <clears throat> I'm afraid I don't have a, uh, well, I, 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 I do, I, I, I do potentially have um, dad jokes. Um, so since that was a theme, um, I started thinking, what's my favorite dad joke? And it is that uh, my mom, uh, I would say to my kid, your mom and I went uh, to hol on holiday on honeymoon. Uh, we went to Switzerland. Uh, you know, Switzerland's not bad. It's a little bit boring, but I guess the flag's a big plus. So uh, anyway, uh, a few smiles, you can store that one away. Acts chapter seven, uh, <clears throat> there's an old Irish blessing which uh, goes like this. May you have the hindsight to know where you've been, the foresight to know where you're going, and the insight to know when you've gone too far. Um, I, again, I think my wife would say that I haven't always had that insight. Uh, there's another uh, more serious uh, comment or quote that goes like this. Uh, you can't know who you are unless you know where you've come from. And uh, I, had a, I had a lecturer once at college who used to start his church history lectures by saying something along the lines of, um, for those of you who have come to faith, through the new church movement, I'm going to surprise you. There were Christians before 2010. For those of you who like to refer to yourself as evangelical, there were Christians before the 18th century. For those of you who like to call yourself Protestant, there were Christians before the Reformation. Uh, for those of you who like to take refuge in the Celtic history of the church here in this island, there were actually Christians before the first ones came to Ireland. And in fact, we may want to surprise you a little bit further and say that, well, they may not have been called Christians, but God had his people before the New Testament. So who are we as people trying to follow Jesus? Where are our real roots? 
At this point in Acts, you have reached the point where Caesar, Stephen has been seized and accused of blasphemy against, well, really accused of two things, blasphemy against God's temple and against God's law, against the place of God and against the standards of God. So essentially his accusers were saying, you're not part of our group and you don't observe our laws. That's what he was accused of. Now, as we get to chapter seven, it looks like the battle lines have been drawn. Uh, the language is really quite hard and uncompromising. Um, there's nothing very mediatory uh, about what's happening or reconciliatory here. But it's important to remember who the different parties are uh, in this story of Stephen and his speech. Uh, this isn't a model for dialoguing uh, with the culture, with the agnostic friend or the unbeliever. Uh, for that, you want to go to like Paul's approach to pagan Athens in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and that's very different from what Stephen is doing here, because Stephen is remonstrating with the religious authorities, those who claim to know God and should have known better. Jesus' strongest criticisms, of course, you remember, were not for the prostitutes or the social outcasts or the so-called sinners who he welcomed and embraced, but they were for the Pharisees. Uh, the New Testament pattern is that persecution and opposition to the gospel of Jesus often comes most strongly from the religious community. And again, we only need to look at our own Christian history <clears throat> to see examples of this. Uh, the revival movements, the reform movements of people like Jan Hus in Czechoslovakia, the Moldavians, Martin Luther himself, were stamped on by the Catholic Church of that day. You're not part of our group. And then, of course, the early Protestants at times would equally be involved in the oppression of non-conformists who weren't conforming to their group or obeying their laws in various parts of Europe <clears throat> around uh, the time of the Reformation, early Anabaptists and smaller groups were persecuted actually by the Catholic and Protestant establishment of the day because again, they didn't conform. Today in places like Ukraine and Eastern Europe where I work with a lot of students, the biggest source of, op of, of opposition to Bible teaching and evangelism comes from the dominant Orthodox churches. Uh, they encourage boycotts of activities run by the likes of the Christian Union student movement and others who aren't part of our group. The evangelical revivals that happened in the 18th and 19th century in Ireland and in Britain were opposed regularly by the state church. They were, these people were called enthusiasts or pietists and clergy who were sympathetic to them were in danger of losing their jobs. Uh, some find themselves locked out of their own churches. Uh, you're not part of our group. One of the most famous and humble and wonderful evangelical preachers of that period in the early 19th century was Charles Simeon of Cambridge, who had a massive influence on a lot of students. Uh, yet he was barred from taking services in his own church. Students who had been challenged by his uh, preaching and had come to Christ 
were ostracized, they were ridiculed, and on some occasions they were actually denied their graduation or academic prizes because they associated with him. His church was vandalized and the perpetrators were never punished. And it was often believed that that had been prompted and sponsored by other clergy who disagreed. He wasn't part of their group. Uh, in Ireland, my own father in the 1950s and 1960s would have visited some remote villages to um, distribute Bibles and talk to folks about Jesus. And on a number of occasions, both Protestant and Catholic clergy would have united around um, uh, banning these missionaries from their villages. And on one or two occasions, he and some of his colleagues had actually stones thrown at them uh, by people who are being whipped up by the religious leaders. There's always been a significant level of opposition to gospel activity from those who are part of a religious scene that gives them security and status. The real conflict with the gospel of God's grace as we find it in Jesus Christ is not always or even in the main from irreligious groups like atheists but often the message of unconditional love and free grace hits at the heart of a religious establishment who want to keep the idea that somehow we can earn through our good works and observation and rituals something that will get us into heaven. And those who are not part of our group will be opposed to that. So remember, Stephen was being accused of not being part of the right group, uh, speaking against the temple, but also speaking against the law. You don't obey our rules. And again, that's not too difficult to see sometimes in Christian history, isn't it? <clears throat> Religious legalistic fundamentalists who write off other Christians because they don't obey the right rules. Maybe they play sport on a Sunday, or they've been known to drink alcohol. And yet, of course, those were the exact same things that Jesus was accused of by the Pharisees. You're a Sabbath breaker, you're a drunkard, and you're a glutton. It's always been that way. And it was part of the situation in which Stephen found himself. He had to defend himself in front of the religious establishment on charges that he didn't obey the right rules and he wasn't part of the right group. And so he begins his speech. And I guess you might think this is not the most interesting chapter in the Acts of the Apostles. There's not much of a plot. It reads like a rambling history lesson. But is it? Uh, I think we need to approach it, uh, remembering something important, that Stephen is defending a biblical view of God's actions in history. And he's essentially outlining the spiritual pedigree of every Christian believer. This is your story, and it's my story. And we find from Stephen's teaching in life three things that I want to, to base my, my talk on this afternoon. I think they will help us to get a grasp of where our roots lie as the people of God. And the three things are this. Our roots are in a people whose God knows no boundaries. Our roots are in a people whose God is faithful through history. And our roots are in a people who are prepared to pay the ultimate price and go 
the ultimate distance. So first of all, <clears throat> our roots are in a people whose God knows no boundaries. Stephen uh, talks about four main epochs of Israelite history. He selects them in verses two to eight. We read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In verses nine to 16, we read about Joseph and Egypt. In verses 17 to 43, we read about Moses. And then in verses 44 to 50, we read about uh, the settlement and the new and the promised land and the monarchy, the tabernacle and the temple. Now remember the charge that Stephen is um, has been accused of. He's against the temple and he's against the law. So he reminds the people he's talking to about their own history. And he asks a very important question. He asks, where did God speak to his people? And if you read the chapter again, you'll see that Stephen's making a point of isolating and focusing in on the places where God spoke that were not the expected places, like the tabernacle and the temple. So he spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He spoke to Moses in the in Egypt, sorry, to Joseph in Egypt. He spoke to Moses in Midian at the burning bush. God was there in all those places. He was in the desert speaking. He was speaking through the prophets, not through the, the, the religious establishment. And what Stephen's saying is that having a temple is no guarantee of faithfulness. It never was. Of the times when God spoke decisively to his people, none of them were in the expected places. I think uh, you guys are in many ways quite fortunate in, in how you, uh, the stage you are in your development as a church, uh, where you meet, because so many churches can get easily caught up in an idolatry of buildings, uh, but you can cut through a lot of that danger and recognize even at this time of pandemic, that what you have lost most, you can see it most clearly, what you have lost most it's not some romantic attachment to a building that you would like to go back to with all due respect to Sing Street School. I'm not sure there's a massive romantic attachment to it for you. What you have lost has been the fellowship, the face-to-face -face fellowship of believers. So our roots are in a people whose God knows no boundaries. He speaks in all sorts of unusual places. <clears throat> and also our roots are in a people whose God is faithful through history. And again, there are special specific instances of that from Stephen's words. Uh, here is a God who keeps his promises. Uh, he mentions circumcision as a sign of what was to follow, that there would be uh, a seed, there would be a nation coming out of Abraham and also the land that they would be promised. And both of those, the seed and the land, are fulfilled in Messiah. He is the end of that genealogy that they, all the Old Testament genealogies point towards. And what they received in the land as a place of security is fulfilled in him. He is their new home. Uh, so he keeps his promises. He also keeps us safe. Uh, Stephen talks about how Joseph was kept safe in the pit 
and then in Pharaoh's household and in prison. But you might ask, well, what about Stephen? It doesn't look like he's going to be kept safe here. In fact, all that lies ahead for him is trouble and death. Well, that doesn't seem to be how Stephen looks at it. Stephen didn't seem to doubt or fear that God would abandon him or not keep him safe. When he is being stoned at the end, he doesn't suddenly turn on God and say, oh, well, hold on, God, what are you up to? You said you would keep me safe. If anything, he is closest to God in those final moments. What Stephen does here is that he simply redefines the word safe. A colleague of mine uh, worked in a very dangerous and war-torn part of the Middle East. Um, it was not a place to be a Christian. And certainly there were a number of the church that he went to pastor who lost their lives at the hands of the Taliban. <clears throat> when he and his wife were going out to pastor a church in this land, he tells a story of how lots of people said to him, are you mad? Are you absolutely mad? And I'll never forget his reply. He said, if God has called us here, then we will be safe nowhere else. You got that? He was actually saying that if God had called him to that part of the Middle East to serve there, then he was in more danger staying at home in comfortable Ireland. He redefined safe. And Stephen's point here is that through it all, Joseph and Moses and the prophets and even he himself, Stephen, would be kept safe from spiritual death, from turning their backs on the God who had called them. They would be kept safe until the moment when they would be eternally safe in the hands of their Savior. We hear about this, don't we, in some of the, some of the old and newer uh, hymns. Uh, there's the older hymn, Bread of Heaven. You sometimes hear it sung at rugby matches. Well, the final verse says, um, Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. And then in Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. We can be kept safe, even at those moments. And he keeps us going. Uh, Stephen tells the story of how Moses and the prophets were constantly rejected by the people. I mean, the perseverance that was needed to keep leading these people through the wilderness, to keep preaching to them, although they never listened. And now with Stephen, I believe this see him God keeps him going keeps him going in his final sermon, keeps him going until the end. And then thirdly, our roots are in a people prepared to pay the ultimate price and go the ultimate distance. What does it mean to go the ultimate distance? One of the things that did seem to characterize the people of God through the centuries that Stephen talks about is their faithfulness until the end. 
One of the saddest things that I have witnessed in my pastoral ministry has been the number of my current contemporaries, churchgoers in middle age who are now empty nesters, their kids have left home, and they've just gone spiritually cold. I've been there, I've done that, I've done my bit, I can put my feet up, I don't need to bother with church anymore. Very often, they don't finish well. That is not the pattern of faithful believers in Scripture. These people go wherever God tells them, and they give whatever God asks of them. Abraham heard and obeyed. Joseph paid the price of his integrity and didn't desert God in the pit or in prison. Moses in the wilderness wanderings for years with an ungrateful people. The prophets, though they were rejected and stoned, and now Stephen, with his life in the balance, is prepared to witness to the radical nature of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Luke, as he is writing this story in Acts, isn't so much concerned by the martyrdom but by the spread of the church that arose from it. And the two, of course, are are related. By his teaching, by his death, Stephen facilitates the worldwide spread of the church. So how does this apply to us? Why did Luke, with only a limited amount of parchment to write on, spend so much time on a history lesson? Surely he could have just said, Stephen stood up, defended the actions of God over the centuries. They didn't like it, and so they stoned him. But Luke is, if you like, the missionary gospel, and then he wrote the missionary logbook of Acts. He's always interested in mission. And here, if you like, is his theological thesis as to why mission is important. His message, the message that Stephen preached to these guys, was that God knows no boundaries and neither should we. This is our world as we see it. If we look up a map, but look at the next slide, that's the world as we should see it with God's eyes. No boundaries. Something that I See, all the time in my work with IFES in Europe, 40 countries, but we're always together in the same mission, with the same heart, seeing God move in different ways. The church was scattered because of Stephen's death. And at at his death, he issues two words. He gives a word about Christ, and he gives two words to Christ. Um, He says... I see, I, I, I see uh, the, the Christ in heaven, the glory of God. And then he says two things to Christ. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he says, Father, forgive them. Don't leave this sin against their charge. Mirroring two words of Jesus himself on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And Father, forgive them. There's another old hymn by Charles Wesley that finishes with the line, happy if with my latest breath I can but gasp his name. 
basically saying, if all I can do with my last breath is gasp the name of Jesus, I will be content. And that was Stephen's testimony. And he was rewarded for his faithfulness. What are you saying? Come on. He was stoned. But there was reward because Stephen got a glimpse, I guess, that none of us will ever have. It's only natural and right that God would reserve such things for those at the extremities of their natural ability to persevere. He gave Stephen something special to keep him going as an encouragement. A little bit like the marathon runner who rounds the final corner and 200 yards ahead sees the finishing line. And that keeps him going. Stephen got a glimpse of heaven and of Jesus standing. We often read of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Why do you think he was standing? Well, one commentator has put it beautifully like this. He stands as a judge to judge Stephen's murderers. He stands to plead the case of Stephen before his father. You know that, that hymn, I know that while in heaven he stands, no part, or the, no, what is it? That's before the throne of God above. I know that while instead in heaven he stands, no force can bid me thence depart. And then he also stands to welcome home his first martyr. What does that mean for us that Christ is standing in heaven? Well, I think that with Christ in heaven, we can make sense of the world and, and of its history. We know who we are because of where we've come from. I studied in the universe, at university uh, as an undergrad under David Bebbington, who is a Christian historian. <clears throat> and he writes this about history. He said that all Christian history is evangelistic. It reveals as credible the belief that God stands behind and acts within the historical process. It serves the evangelistic task of proclaiming Jesus Christ as the one whose victorious work assures us that God will bring history to a triumphant close. Christian history brings us hope. Christian history brings us hope. Some of you may be familiar with um, Seamus Heaney's famous poem, The Cure at Troy. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave, but then once in a lifetime, the longed for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that a further shore is reachable from here. With Christ in heaven, we can make sense of history. With Christ in heaven, we can speak boldly. Stephen could have saved his skin. He could have made his words a little more diplomatic. But he knew what was at stake. What was at stake was the nothing less than the radical integrity of Jesus' message and gospel. If he stepped down on anything here, if he compromised so that some of the law was still necessary to be right with God, or that some temple worship in a particular geographical place in Jerusalem was necessary to be a true God-fearer. If he compromised on any of that, 
the Christian faith was sunk. Because those two things go right to the heart of all that Jesus was and all that Jesus came to do. Stephen needed to expose the paradoxes in the Jewish leader's position here. In terms of what they'd done to Jesus, in verse 51 onwards, he shows that the circumcised were actually uncircumcised in their hearts where it mattered. The privileged people were actually stiff-necked and disobedient. Those who claimed to be the guardians of the truth were actually resisting the spirit of truth. Those who said they revered the law were actually disobeying it. Does all of that sound very harsh? Maybe for those of us who always like to negotiate and see if we can see both sides of the story and come to some agreement, be involved in peace building, and that's good. I've been involved in that um, for a long time. Does this seem very harsh? You know, the end of the chapter seems to be a bunch of people yelling at each other, you know, a bit like Doyle Ireland on a bad day, shouting at each other, shouting down the different viewpoints. Now, Stephen's love for his persecutors is in no doubt. Nobody else prays, Father, forgive them if, if they don't love them. But he wouldn't compromise. He wouldn't compromise on the glory of God. He had the courage at times to say no. There are times we will need to say no as individuals, as a church, in order to protect the glory of God and the gospel. But we must do it with genuine love in our hearts, with no bitterness or superiority. Because the third thing about knowing Christ in heaven is that with Christ in heaven, we have the power to forgive. The great sea chain, says Heaney, on the far side of revenge. The context of jo Joseph and Moses and Stephen was above all a God who forgave their enemies and empowered them to forgive their enemies. And that God still graciously reaches out to his people. Matthew Henry, an old Puritan commentator, once said this, it contributes very much to our dying comfortably to die in charity with all men. Do not let the sun of life go down upon your wrath. So that verse in the New Testament about not going to bed angry, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Henry applies it to our life. Die at peace with everyone. Because with Christ in heaven, we don't need to fear. Heaney talked about more than he knew, I think, when he said, believe that a further shore is reachable from here. With Christ in heaven, there is no need to fear. Can we be sure? Let me finish with this illustration. When I was ministering in County Wicklow, I got an invitation, along with some other folks, to a garden party at the Arras in Phoenix Park. Mary McAleese was the president at the time. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, what do you say to a president? You know, so we were all queuing up and we were uh, being uh, introduced to her one by one or two by two if we were with our partners. And I was standing there thinking, what on earth? 
do I say to her? And I tried to think, you know, I'm from the north, she's from the north. I think we have a couple of people that we know in common. But then I realized, oh, yes, she opened the new church building in Greystones where I had just arrived. I'd arrived only a matter of three or four months. And she'll remember that. And I'll tell her that I'm the new guy in the place that she opened the hall. So we were standing there, my wife and I, and the people in front of us were, had gone in. And then we were called. And as I walked towards her, she looked up, smiled, never met me before, but came towards me, got up and sort of came towards me. And before I could say anything, reached out her hand and said, welcome, David. How are you settling in on Greystones? And I was flabbergasted. No, um, her advisor had briefed her well. I think it's pretty clear to say. Um, they, whoever was there in the background uh, had the list and knew the connections and had done their homework. But boy, was I impressed that here was me worrying about what I might say, whereas she had it worked out. She knew who I was. She knew the right question to express an interest. It, was, it just relaxed me immediately. Folks, when we come to meet the King of Kings, we don't need to worry about what we're going to say or what we're wearing and, or any of that because he knows all about us. When England won the World Cup in 1966, uh, and if you've ever met an English person, they may have mentioned it once or twice, Steve. Um, but uh, whenever they won the Football World Cup in 1966, Bobby Moore, the captain, was once asked, what was it like to meet the Queen and to collect the cup? And he said that the only thing he could think of as he was walking up those Wembley steps to meet the Queen, who was wearing a lovely pair of white gloves, was that his hands were filthy. He'd been playing football for 90 minutes, or was it extra time, maybe 120 minutes. His hands were filthy. He said he spent the whole time on the way up the steps rubbing his hands on his, on his shorts so that he could shake the Queen's hand. When we go to meet the King of Kings, we don't need to worry about our hands being dirty because Jesus has cleansed us and dressed us in the white robes of his righteousness. Our hands are no longer dirty. We have been forgiven. We don't need to worry about what to say because he knows us intimately and in a much, much greater way than Mary McAleese rose to come and greet me. There will come a day that like Stephen, I pray that we will be, have been faithful enough and persevered enough to the end that when it comes our time, we will get that glimpse of the King of Kings rising to meet us and welcome us and embrace us and say, welcome home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example, inspiring example of all those who have gone where you have asked them to go and given all that you have asked to give. From Stephen onwards, Lord, we feel so inadequate, but we pray that this passage will be both a warning to us not to forsake you, the God who keeps us going, but also an inspiration to us 
that as you work through ordinary human frail people like Stephen and the other apostles, you can work through us. And thank you for that wonderful assurance that you will rise to meet us on the last day to welcome us home and that we will have been presented spotless with no dirty hands that we try to clean rapidly before we get to you, but that we are already dressed in the robes of your righteousness. You look at us as we are in Christ. Thank you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.